Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. This episode features one of the three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it is broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival. The 8th annual New York City premiere will be October 2023, along with the 5th annual New York Cat Film Festival before traveling the country, supporting local animal welfare groups. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at TracyHotchnerPets.com. I would not be able to bring you this show without the generous support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their kitties. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. This show would not be possible without the longtime support from Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food. Other pet food companies may have copied them over time, but Waruva remains privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards, not investors who focus on profits. I have another amazing Project Street Vet veterinarian to join us, and she also wears a pretty important hat in the academic world. Dr. Ari Acock-Williams is the executive director of the Department of Animal Resources at USC, University of Southern California, and is also, I don't know how she has any extra time, out on the street helping people with their animals. Ari, thank you so much for joining me and also for becoming a Project Street Vet vet because I think it it must, I'm hoping, give you some balance in your life to look at people who live a very different life than you lead, right? Yes, definitely. And I want to thank you, Tracy, for having me on. Um, um, yeah, and giving me this opportunity to talk about Project Street Vet because it is very rewarding to help pets in need. And they, des- I believe they deserve the same standard of care that we can give to our own pets um, who are out on the streets. So I'm happy to definitely have that balance in life. Before we talk about the balance of working on the street with people and their animals, which has to be, you know, a very different skill set than the one you were trained for in vet school, can you talk about the extra degree you have next to your name, along with DVM for Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, ACLAM? What does that mean? Yeah, so that stands for the American College of Laboratory Animal Medicine. And it's a certification that I have as a diplomate um, through that college. Uh, and it means that I have taken 
a board exam and have gone through a lab animal residency and um, have been trained specifically in lab animal medicine. So it's a specialty of veterinary medicine. Unfortunately, what we mostly hear about lab animals, particularly in veterinary colleges, which seems almost like a contradiction in terms, being that veterinarians are trained to look after animals and, and never do harm, one hears, I've become aware of certainly through the White, Coast, White Coat Waste Project, of universities that, that are treating lab animals, mostly dogs, in the case of this show is of particular interest, without any regard for their welfare. So was this something when you were thinking of becoming a doctor that you became aware of in your personal training that it was very important how lab animals were treated? What, what led you personally to think more about their welfare and then make it your career? Oh, yes, definitely. It was something I thought about um, in veterinary school um, as a vet student because we utilized dogs to even learn how to perform surgery and, you know, yes. learn about the anatomy. And we learned, used live animals for that. And I'm so thankful we got to do that so that, you know, someone's pet wouldn't be right. the one I'm training on, for example. <laughs> and, and they prepared us so well so that when we did use the live animals in the labs, we weren't harming them. Um, we had, you know, board certified surgeons overseeing everything we were doing and everything turned out great. So it helped build our confidence. And then just extrapolating that into, you know, my career as lab animal veterinarian, um, we ensure that there's animal welfare and a high standard of care for these animals in the lab setting and the research setting, specifically biomedical research that they're never mistreated, that they're always given pain medication, that they are treated humanely. And that's the only way you get good science anyway is that you have absence of, or minimization of pain and distress and that animals are treated well. Um, so it's a, definitely a big part of my career, um, why I'm in this field. And it's disappointing to hear, you know, the media um notifications or news about certain issues that happen, sometimes I feel like they're taken out of context and we may not see the whole picture of what may have happened. Um, and remember, these things might be sensationalized to get the public's emotional appeal. But really, we need animal research in order to get the breakthroughs we have, like the COVID-19 vaccine, in order to get any kind of medical advancement research. Those are animals that not only gave their lives and time, right, but in a humane way for our our advancement in our health. So we actually owe a lot of great deal of thanks to the animals that do this for us and we're able to get this information from them. I would say that we also owe a great deal of thanks to doctors like yourself and thinkers like yourself who recognize that if really the the normal human relationship to a lab animal was to be kind, was to be thoughtful, was to remove pain, then your job wouldn't need to exist, Ari. I mean, that is the truth because the standard of care before you even became a vet, maybe even before you were thinking of becoming a vet, was there was no standard of care. Animals were used and abused with abandon. And in fact, a friend of mine who went to the University of Pennsylvania uh, talked about the years that she was a vet. She's older now. 
and how hmm. you would be given a lab animal to work on or to operate on. And then you were supposed to euthanize it, a otherwise perfectly fine and healthy animal. And at some point, the thinking changed. And the vet hmm. students were allowed to possibly adopt those animals or give them a home, or they were allowed to go get a home. Those are pretty new ideas. So maybe from the inside, it seems to you that there's media sensationalization. But I'm media, and I've never sensationalized because, honestly, the egregious abuses that happen in some places, in some ways, particularly the the NIH-funded studies, Mm -hmm. many of them entirely pointless and very valuable to the the men and possibly women making money off it, uh, I don't have to sensationalize them. They're sensationally horrible all on their own. So I was really excited to learn that there is a whole specialty in the veterinary world of doctors like yourself who consider it the norm that there should be a decency to the way animals are treated. I mean, you know how chimps were treated when we were all kids, I mean, it was pretty awful, right? And that doesn't happen anymore. Many of them are released. Isn't yes, that the case? And yes, and there's regulations too. So um, there's federal regulations, and then there's also committees at big institutions like the one that I work at that um, are regulatory based. They perform inspections. There's accreditation um, organizations that if you don't have that, you don't get the federal funding. You need I to see. do the research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that. I think those are why the standards have elevated um, recently, like you said. Um, and then, yeah, you're right that there needs to be always this growth of thought on how can we provide alternatives, how can we reduce the number of animals we use in research, how can we refine techniques. Um, so we, we're always trying to think about that. And one of those is, yes, can we adopt the animals after this study or after this training? You know, how can we refine this so that we're able to continue to use these animals optimally in, in our lives, right, and in a non-invasive um, way, right? And feel that you're still the good guy you always wanted to be, right, and not be exactly. in, this, in this kind of moral gray area. I think it's fantastic yeah. that you're doing this work because – you are the next generation. I'm sure you probably think there's a generation coming behind you. There is, but I mean, mm-hmm. you're still a very young woman. And that perspective, you grew up with a different perspective than your parents or grandparents in terms of what animals mean to any of us, or certainly than yeah. what they meant to, to veterinarians in their training. I mean, aren't there, wasn't there a whole movement, not quite a rebellion, but amongst veterinary students who wanted to have choices other than than live animals to work on for some procedures, certainly for spay-neuter, you probably right. still need a, a living animal, but those animals don't have to die afterwards. You've spayed-neutered an animal, and then it can, we hope, maybe go get adopted. But was, isn't, was there not a movement, perhaps in your time, or I don't know what the, the epic was, when veterinarians said, no, I'd like to work on, you know, I don't know if it was computer-generated AI kind of stuff or if it was a rubber model or something synthetic that was like live tissue. Am I right about that, or is that just wishful thinking on my part? Um, I No, I think you're completely correct. It did happen, I think, after I graduated vet school. Um, so I graduated in 2009. Okay. So... Yes, and I think after that they did start doing away with live animal anim- animals to practice for especially spay and neuter. 
and looking at other technologies for that, which is a, a way to replace. It's part of the what we call the three R's in lab animal medicine. Um, as long as it's providing the veterinary student or you know future doctor with the information they need to practice completely, you know, in the future, I agree with it as long as it works. What um, are the three R's? Comment specifically on my. Oh, they're replacement, refinement, and reduction. Oh, interesting. So there's a whole philosophical ideology about this, which is great. I mean, I think it's important mm-hmm. to counterbalance the depressing stories that that are brought to light with the fact that, for the most part, it's a vigilant profession in which these three R's are being put to use. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I... I think important also for people who want to become veterinarians that they know that they're going into a field where these ideas are at work, the do no harm idea, mm-hmm. right? Because exactly. otherwise it's, it could be disturbing. And what if somebody wanted to be the kind of veterinarian you are, which is not to personally practice with a scalpel or mm-hmm. meet people face-to-face in a clinic office hour after hour? They might feel better not thinking they have to do things to live animals. For sure, yeah. So um, I particularly love the lab animal profession um, because it does offer kind of an alternative way to practice. Like our researchers are our clients. (laughs) And the lab animals are our pets in many ways. And uh, we name them. We try oh, to adopt do. them when we can. We, yeah, we um, play with them. We provide them with enrichment. And while they're here with us, we try to give them the best lives we can. Um, and it helps us, too, in our jobs. Um, yes. They help de-stress us in, the, in that same way. That's really so, nice. Um, and, yeah. And then we provide the veterinary care they need. But then there's this extra layer of these animals are kind of honorable creatures that they're providing us this extra information to advance human health and medicine and possibly pet health and medicine. That's a really good word, honorable. Yeah, that's really nice. So let's talk about you going out on the street. Mm -hmm. Your office is at USC, which when I lived in LA, USC was and still is a, a really excellent school, but in a kind of dodgy neighborhood. Now, LA could have transformed and it could be high income now, but it was kind of, uh, you know, there were, it was not a great area. You couldn't walk around there as a, as a female young student, you know, at night kind of thing. I don't know if that's changed, but are the, your clients on the street who live homeless with their pets, are they in the USC area or do you go somewhere else to, to service them? Currently I go somewhere else. So I don't um, connect, the, the USC, like, um, broader community with Project Street Vet. Um, it's more, I've gone to, like, Long Beach or to Venice. Oh, really? And, um, mm-hmm, or downtown L.A. and Skid Row. Yep. So um, Project Street Vet has been really great at coordinating areas where they know there's a need based on, like, where there's caseworkers or they know there's, a, you know, lot of um, unhoused people yes. with pets available. So we'll go where there is a need there. Um, I haven't seen much around one of the campuses at USC, which you're probably referring to in South LA. There doesn't seem to be a lot of unhoused people around there. And Interesting. they've done a lot to revitalize that campus. That doesn't um, surprise yeah. me. 
<laughs> I mean, all the all uh, the, the successful people who went to USC, and I'm sure have given lots of money. I'm sure they have everything getting better and bigger and, and nicer all the time. Venice, California, to those people who don't know, is adjacent to Santa Monica, California, that has one of the largest homeless encampments that any of us read about or see. That must be a complex place for you to go to, Ari, to see how many thousands of people are living unhoused in tents and squatters' dwellings with their animals. Is it hard for you to just do one client after another and try to, I guess, block out the, the kind of human suffering all around you? Um, it is difficult. So, yeah, it has an emotional component to it um, to see, you know, humanity like this. Um, and I'm, I'm just glad I can provide a service that can help them. Many of these people we talk to, they say that their pets are the reason why they're still alive. Yep. Or the reason why they were able to even get off drugs. Yes. Um, the reason why they're, um, you know, able to smile today because they have their their companion with them. That and that's sometimes the only, like, um, you know, companion they have. That's they don't right. Have anyone else? Yeah. So hearing those stories lifts me up, and it makes me want to continue to help anybody in the situation, and. And it's just rewarding to see that the pets are healthy, they're well taken care of, because these people love them. They love their pets. And I imagine that seeing your smiling face and your volunteering there as a professional has to also lift the spirits of the people. Because the fact that you care enough about their pets slash them gives them a connection to humanity that they wouldn't otherwise have, other than you know being shooed away from whatever little corner of misery they've tried to, mm. to create a home in. I really salute you for it. I think it's really hard to see that amount of suffering and know that it, no one of us can make a difference. And yet you, as one human, are making a difference. You're making a difference one person and pet at a time. And probably the people around that person with the pet that, that see you, that listen to you, that hear you, it probably elevates their sense of having some worth in society where they've been discarded or ignored. So I really commend you for it. I imagine it's very painful emotionally. And I thank you on the behalf of the rest of us that don't seem to be doing anything because we don't know what to do, that you have something you can do and you're doing it. And I hope that other other doctors like Ari Aycock-Williams will take uh, – take her example as a way that they too can give back in their own community. Eri, thanks so much for your time and for all the good that you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on, Tracy. And um, thank you to Project Street Vet for allowing me to give of my services in this way. Well, it's lovely. Thank you so much again. Thanks for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. This show is supported by Wonderside, a company founded and run by a woman entrepreneur who wanted to find an effective natural way to keep fleas, ticks, and other pests away from her pets and home instead of putting toxic chemicals in or on them. Wonderside makes plant-powered products to keep parasites at bay without dousing your pets and property with ingredients that are harmful to them and the planet. 
The show is also underwritten by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human edible, ethically sourced ingredients and gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They founded and run their own company and have been doing that for 14 years and answer only to their own high standards without interference from venture capital investors. I'm also grateful to Earth Animal, also privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative Dog Chew No Hide and the hybrid dog food Wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky blue Weimarano Maisie will eat.